being with you. I'm Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's great to be able to worship again on this uh, Sunday morning, the Sunday after Easter. It's always exciting as pastors come around the Sunday after Easter to see who still shows up. And so we're glad that you're here. We welcome you, and uh, so grateful that you have come back. We're in a series in the book of Ephesians, and we actually began the book of Ephesians a, a long time ago, and we covered chapters 1 through 3. So what we do here is we like to take a book of the Bible uh, and uh, allow God to teach us, and if it weren't for the Bible, people like me would have nothing to say of significance, that's for sure. And so Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we have covered those first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, a letter written to the city of Ephesus in the country that we today call Turkey. You see a map of it on the screen there. It's one of the uh, uh, seven cities that is there that are often referred to in the book of Revelation and Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And it's interesting because uh, a number of months ago, we actually had a tour set up to go to Turkey and we would be there this week. And it's exciting because uh, we would have been there even as America was evacuating all their embassy people from the, tur- from the country of Turkey as well. So we're going in as everybody else is going out. It was just, I guess it was just interesting to me. But uh, still, nevertheless, that is where we are exposing ourselves to in the scriptures that God has given to us. So we covered Ephesians 1 through 3. Those first three chapters deal with a doctrinal theological basis of our relationship with God and with one another. It is the very, very substantial foundation upon which we should live our lives. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 that we're going to now explore together actually show how therefore we should live our lives. What are those applications? What are those reference points? What are those relationships? What are they going to be looking like? So we're going to be talking about from a very practical way those things that would help us to live life better together with one another. And this morning, we begin by talking about the walk that makes life better together. Let me read the text. There's an outline that's in the bulletin. You will find it uh, especially helpful as I want to reference a couple of things on the back side. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul is continuing his discussion. He just had this wonderful um, doxology, if you will, this benediction in chapter 3. And then he goes on, therefore, in light of all that God has done in saving us and securing our life with him, he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing, for, uh, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A little backdrop. He's talking about all this unity. The church at Ephesus had a struggle between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, There was this brokenness of that relationship. Uh, There was this wall that should be torn down. The Jews want the church to be more like Judaism. The Gentiles coming in have no frame of reference for the history, the traditions, and the teachings of Judaism. And there was this split. And Jews would look at Gentiles in a negative way and vice versa. So this is a broken relationship that Paul wants to bring them together. Therefore, in light of all that God has done, that he saved us all, that we are all one body, one Lord, one faith, 
one hope we should live that way. So we want to live better together. The application is widespread for a church like us, but it's also relevant for marriages, for relationships, for friendships, for places where we work with our neighbors. This is the way we should live our lives out today. And so we're talking about a walk, the walk that he has called us to. And he says the first thing that, he not- that I noticed that he says this, how should I walk? I should walk in a way that is a manner worthy of my calling. Worthy of my calling. You think about it. What is your calling? Has God called you to something? And what is that walk that I should have? Therefore, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. That word implore fits well with the better together theme. What you can't see in the English, those who read it in the Greek could see. The word implore is made up of para, P-A-R-A, like paramedics, meaning beside someone, and kaleo, to call to someone. Paul is saying, I want to come alongside and call to you. I want to be right there with you. But I'm a prisoner. He is being held captive by the Roman rulers of the day. So he is in prison for his faith. He hasn't violated the laws of, of man, but they say he has violated the laws of God in the Roman ruler's sight, so they have imprisoned him. So it's one of the so-called four prison epistles. So he says, I am in prison. I am being held against my will. I would like to be with you, Ephesian people. I would like to be right beside you and call to you these things. So he wants to be better together with them as well. He says, I want to implore you to call to you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been I want that to be the case. Here is one reference point for what that calling is in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 1, 4. Paul wrote earlier, just as he chose us, he called us. We didn't choose him, he chose us. In Jesus, before the foundation of the world, even before Adam and Eve, even before the Garden of Eden, before Genesis 1, he called us, which is just unimaginable because God is so much greater than we are that he called us before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. God calls us to holiness. There's a lot of other things that we're called to, but the bottom line is if we don't have holiness, all these other things that we have are meaningless in God's sight. He says, that I didn't save you to heal your body. I didn't save you to give you a good job. I didn't save you so you can have a wonderful home. I didn't save you so you can have the car of your dreams. I didn't save you so you could be very wealthy. I didn't save you to do any of that. That's not what I chose you to do before the foundation of the world. My choice of you is so that you would be holy and blameless. That's the calling of God. And he says, I did it in love. And he goes on to talk about it in Ephesians 1. So how how do we do that? We walk. He didn't say we run. We walk. So the idea of walk in my mind, I put on the screen, it's a slow, it's a steady, a consistent, a persistent, long-term, no quick injections to cause spiritual growth. It is a continuous journey. Now, if you run and you fail or trip, are you hurt more than if you walk and you fail and you trip? 
Some people want to run in their spiritual journey. They're just, they're just eager. They want to go. They want to go. They're highly gifted, highly talented, and they're on the move, and they're going out there. But when they fall, they fall big time. Paul says, I'm not asking you to run because there's no quick fixes. There's no fast journey to the spiritual growth. I call you to walk, and to walk in a way that is steady and consistent and persistent. It's not as flashy. It's not as noticeable. But it is the calling of God for us. That's interesting, the, the, the walk, this, this whole fitness thing. You know, there are, there are these Fitbit watches you can wear. I have a watch that actually tells me how much I've walked. And every Monday morning, it sends me a message to tell me how much I've walked the last week. And generally, I don't want to hear that. I don't want that message. I don't need to be told those things. Because it compares to the week before, and it compares to the week before, and if you didn't do it as well, it's one more thing to discourage us in life. <laughs> I can't get it to not do that, so, but it still doesn't. There is a walk that we naturally do on a regular basis every day, and that's what I am being told in my watch. I don't consider that to be a walk of fitness. That's just ordinary stuff. I think that when Paul is inviting us into a walk, there's an intentionality to that. If I want to be fit, my everyday walking is not going to get me there. I need something that really becomes more significant in terms of intentionality to move in that direction. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I just want to lay the groundwork that it is a walk that he's called us into, a steady, persistent, consistent pursuit of holiness before God. And then secondly, he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The word worthy is a word that you in the English won't see the fullness of the richness of that word in, as they read it in the Greek. The word worthy is a term that is used in the marketplace. It is where you would go to buy a, uh, a bunch of meat. And you'd put the meat on one side of the scale and you put your bartering chips on the other side of the scale. And as soon as the bartering chips are the same uh, weight as the meat, the butcher will say, that is a worthy price and I will sell it to you. So the idea of worthy, axios, is to be in balance. It means to have equal weight. It is our conduct and our beliefs that are consistent. And it means this whole thing that I live is consistent with what God says. The problem is we get out of balance sometimes. And I'll illustrate in a moment. But let me show you a video clip of someone who doesn't have balance in life. Take a look. So you're thinking about getting Verizon TV service? You bet. Well, did you know they often use expensive cancellation fees to lock you into a long-term contract? Seriously? Man, makes me wonder what else I don't know. Do you know you're supposed to work out your lower body, too? Sometimes, it's not just this guy, but some people are, are like that. They're real strong in one area, but they're miserable in other areas. God wants a church body to have healthy balance. God wants us to be spiritually 
in healthy balance. So the idea of being worthy is what I believe is actually how I live. I can't pick and choose what I want to believe and then pick and choose how I want to live it. I can't sort of say, well, I, I like the whole idea of truth, but I'm not real high on this whole concept of love. I can't somehow choose those things I believe in and want to live by and just ignore a bunch of other stuff that just doesn't suit me well. It's not part of my personality. God says, I want you to have fitness that is balanced. I see God on one side, and I should see me on the other side. And God says, here's how holy I am. And Dave, I want you right there with me. Now, it's not easy to do except for Jesus Christ making it possible. Here is the balance at Calvary Church. We have three values that we have here. We want to connect with God and others. We want to grow in our faith. We want to reach Orange County and the world for Jesus Christ. The challenge for you and for me is so that we don't look like this guy in the Verizon commercial is that there's some people who are very, very well, uh, have a very strong connection with other people. They're outgoing. They're extroverts. They just engage easily. We love that. We love those things. We love them to be greeters, those who can reach out to the neighborhoods. We love that kind of ongoing relationship. But that's maybe the upper body of strength. And then there's the core, grow in your faith. And those who are super extroverted, they're just as loving and kind and, and uh, just uh, amazingly socially driven people. But their core, the growing in faith, very weak. They're not students of the Word. Uh, they might wear a Fitbit and, Fitbit and they'll can tell you how many steps they've, they've walked in the course of a week like me, but there's never a specific intentionality to their growth of the study of God's Word, where God's Word is penetrating my heart, piercing as the division of soul and spirit, of, of deep inside of who I am. And then there are some of us, we love to grow in our faith, we love knowledge, we love to study. I love to study the Bible. I love to break that down. I love the exegesis. I love the exposition. I love all the Greek languages. I love all that stuff. And I can love the Word of God, but sometimes I don't love people enough. You know, it's really easy to love the Bible when you're a sort of analytically driven person. But the problem with a lot of us who are analytically driven people who love the Bible is that I've run into so many, and I can sometimes count myself, is I don't love people enough. Well, that's like having a strong upper body but very skinny legs. You look strong to everybody, but what you can't see underneath the pants, there's there's weak legs. You, you have nothing to sustain you over time. And so what we want at Calvary in this whole Better Together theme, we want it individually, we want it corporately. We want balance that says, I'm not going to be super strong in one area and terribly weak in another area. I want to be strong in terms of connecting with God and others. I want to be strong in growing in my faith. I want to be strong in reaching Orange County in the world for Jesus Christ. We need balance in all three areas. To work better together. That's a worthy calling, and that's what we're invited into. Now, we walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling not only when we have balance, but when we have the right attitude. So we talk about three words that Paul lists here. You notice that he has them here in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness 
with patience. I love that Paul has chosen those three words. There's a lot of words he could have chosen. You know, the, humility, gentleness, and patience, there's no headlines there when you do those things. There's a lot of award shows, there's Academy Award shows. If you're a very gifted actor or actress, if you're a very beautiful person, if you're highly skilled in directing or uh, in terms of uh, dress and backdrops and scenery, you get at Academy Awards. If you're a highly skilled athlete, you might win the Heisman Trophy if you play college football. Tomorrow night, if you're a highly skilled college basketball player or coach, you might win the NCAA championship game in basketball. If you're highly skilled, there are awards, there are prizes, there are achievements, there's money to be paid out, and the world loves those things and supports them and pays for those things and gives them great trophies and, and, uh, and acknowledge them in, in books and headlines and movies. and uh, Anyways, there's a lot of accolades for a lot of skills. But where the world does not offer an award is in the area of those who are humble, those who are gentle, and those who are patient. So Paul says, I'm going to turn the world upside down. And if you want to live better together, you will live better together, not if you have the highest IQ and you get an award like a Nobel Peace Prize, not if you win the Heisman Trophy and so therefore you'll live better together with other people. No, you will live better together when you have humility, gentleness, and patience. Your marriage will be better if you are known for your humility, gentleness, and patience. Your neighbors will count you as a better friend if they see within you humility, gentleness, and patience. Your boss will notice what a tremendous employee you are in their place of business if you've become known for your humility, your gentleness, and your patience. These are the qualities God said. Paul, write them down. These three I want my people to have. So, humility. Humility is the difference against pride. In Philippians chapter 2, if you turn over, you see in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus is a prime example of humility. Let me read from this, and I put on the back side of the outline, the digging deeper, what I believe are some qualities of humility. How do you know if you have humility? Most people who are humble don't know that they're humble. Those people who think they're humble probably are proud. And so there's kind of a problem there. And so I want us to see that in Jesus there is tremendous humility. Humility is made up of these things, and I throw them on the screen, but they're on the back side of your outline because obviously you're not going to remember them on the screen. But in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And I think a humbled person who is someone who works very hard toward unity and peace with others. It's just a primary 
It's a primary force. Some people, I'm convinced, don't care how much division they create. Some people, I'm convinced, just could care less about how much conflict they leave in their wake. A humble person says, I care deeply about unity and peace with other people. We also read in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interest of others. Humbled people do not consider their own desires as more important than others' desires. Humbled people regard other people as more important than themselves. They have a priority list. And I'm on the last on that list in terms of how I value your desires or what's important to you. I relinquish that to you. We also read, having this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, left aside the glory of heaven, taking from the form of a bondservant, becoming a human being like us, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." And I say, humbled people, they seek to find out about the interest of others before their own interests. Humbled people listen better than they talk. Humbled people are interested in what you think, not what they want to say. Humbled people are in tune with the concerns and needs of those they are with as opposed to imposing their concerns and needs on others. Humbled people are willing to let go of their own needs and rights for the sake of others and finding unity. In a marriage, a humbled husband, for example, will say, I have the right to do something, but I'm not going to do it because I believe it's better for us if I downplay my own desires and my own rights for the sake of you, honey. And he downplays that. And she, or vice versa, she downplays her rights for the sake of her husband. That's humility. Humility is where I'm willing to be sacrificially obeying God so that I can show God's love to others. I'll do whatever it takes. As Jesus said, I was willing to die upon that cross so my Father in heaven could show how much he loves you. Humbled people do those things. They don't work hard at doing it. It comes naturally. It's sort of an innate desire. And they don't notice that they're doing it. They just do it. But it's something that Paul commands us to be, and that's how we function as a church. And humbled people function that way. Proud people don't. Proud people demand their own rights. Proud people don't care about conflict they create. Proud people aren't concerned about division and hardships that their will is forcing on someone else. And in marriage and relationships and churches, that's true. It's interesting. I read this last week as I was thinking about and looking up humility. I came across an article from the Wall Street Journal last year. And the title of the article is The Case for Humble Executives. The Case for Humble Executives. Humility is the flavor of the day, says Fran Hansen, a former CEO of a big company, corporation. He's author of a book on leadership. 
companies increasingly prize humble leaders because, here's why they prize humble leaders. They prize humble leaders because humble leaders listen well, admit mistakes, share the limelight, and recruiters, recruiters and coaches say the servant leadership model promotes collaboration. And they love those kind of leaders. There are some people running for office that should read that article. That's my, that's my lone political statement of the day. Secondly, gentleness. Gentleness in the Greek and the language there is a term that is used of, let's just take a lion, a wild lion. It's used of a master that domesticates and trains a wild lion. So the lion becomes submissive and obedient in carrying out the tricks and the tasks that the master tells the lion to do. The lion still has every bit as much power, has all the power, but that lion is putting aside his power for the sake of what the master asks him to do. That's gentleness. Gentleness is not saying that you have no power and you're weak. Gentleness is saying you have power, but you have chosen to not use the power that is yours for the sake of a greater good of the master who controls your life. So Paul says, I want you to be gentle, and the Lord is my master, and I may have power to do certain things, but Lord, as you have called me into this relationship and you challenge me to how to live my life, I'm going to relinquish that power because I want to be in obedience to you. Gentle people control anger. They get angry in the right way, and they don't get angry in the wrong way. And a good example of that is way back in Numbers chapter 12, or 14, that I've used, uh, I think, a number, uh, 12, I should say, a number of times, and it's the great account of Moses. Moses leading the people in, in Israel, and in Numbers chapter 12, it says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, and he had married a Cushite woman. And so Miriam and Aaron are the sister and brother of Moses. Moses is the leader in charge of the nation of Israel, this great and mighty leader, and brother and sister are undermining and attacking Moses' leadership. And they say it's because you married the wrong woman. And it wasn't because they married the wrong woman. It's because they're jealous of his leadership. They think they should be leaders. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? See, it's all about why does God only speak through Moses? Can't he speak through me, Miriam says? Shouldn't I be up there in the, in the prominent position of leadership of the nation of Israel? Shouldn't that be my role? So she undermines her own brother. Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it, it writes. Moses says, the Lord heard that. And here is where we are told that now the man Moses, in verse 3, was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the door with a tent. And he called Miriam and Aaron out, and essentially what God did is he gave leprosy to them. And here is the thing that strikes me, and I think about that, and for the sake of time, I don't have time to go through all these things, but on the back side of the outline, I give them to you, and I encourage us as a congregation, we as individuals, that we need to make sure if these are the things that God says we should have, humility and gentleness, I better make sure I understand what they are so I live it. 
And when Moses is under attack, I notice that his gentleness will be tested as people question and undermine his authority. If you're a gentle person, people will challenge that because it looks like you're weak. A gentle person does not respond in anger or revenge when offended or undermined by family and friends. Moses had the authority and the power to rebuke both Miriam and Aaron, but he did not. He backed away. He allowed God to intervene and do his divine thing. A gentle person has faith that God is controlling our circumstances and I'm treated unfairly. I get out of the way and let God do his thing. And God came and struck them with leprosy. He eventually healed them and restored them, reconciled them. And a gentle person is one who patiently waits for God to do that intervening to help correct what's wrong. God calls us into a gentleness where we have power to do a lot of things, but we know when we should use it and when we shouldn't. We have anger about those things that frustrate us, but we know when we express anger when we do not. God calls us to humility and gentleness. And then he calls us to patience. Patience is the macrothumia. Macro meaning big, large. Thumia, thumos means anger. I mean, it takes a long time for me to get angry. And what he's referring to here is patience as opposed to an unforgiving spirit. This word patience is primarily used of having the opportunity to retaliate, but I choose not to retaliate. I hold back from those things I feel like I want to do. One of the illustrations or one of the verses that talks about that is 1 Timothy 1. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that God, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me uh, as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience, his macrothumia. Jesus God demonstrates to Paul in his depth of sin, his patience. See, God had the right to retaliate to Paul's sin, but he says, I'm going to put it all on Jesus. So Jesus took all of my anger, and Paul, you're free. It's a wonderful patience. It's an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life. It's an example of what God wants. God had the opportunity to retaliate. He did it to his son instead of Paul. He did it to Jesus instead of me did it to Jesus instead of you. That's patience. And then you wrap all that together in this other concept of verse 2 and 3. Showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When I have, gen- when I have humility and gentleness and patience, and I have this tolerance in the, for one another in love, then in my marriage, in my friendships, in my church, I will, have preser- I will preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those are the things that drive us together in unity to make life better together. Those are the core essences. That's the balance of a worthy walk that God invites us into. I love this concept, though. I want to clarify something. Showing tolerance for one another in love. I call it tolerant love. When I say tolerance or a tolerant love, there are a lot of us in our minds going to say, oh, appeasement, excuse-making, allowing someone to get away with something they shouldn't do. That's tolerance. Sort of putting up with those things I don't really agree with, but it looks like I'm acquiescing and giving in and allowing those things I don't agree with to really flourish. That's not tolerant love. Let me explain tolerant love. The word tolerant, throw it on the screen, is to hold up against. 
It is to hold up against a person so as to bear with them. There's two ways that tolerant love could be illustrated. Let me uh, take our daughters when they were young. If Kirsty is running around as a three-year-old and she stumbles and falls and she gets a boo-boo on her knee, I pick her up, I hold her close, I let her cry, and I show her tolerant love. I hold her close as she's wounded and I want to help her. On the other hand, if Kirstie and I are walking down the street and she wants to walk into 17th Street on over here in Tustin, although we weren't here at that time, but if she wanted to walk in the street, she says, I don't care about you, Dad. I'm so upset. I'm so angry. I'm really frustrated with life. I'm just, it's just out of control. And she wants to run into the street and just throw herself in the middle of the traffic. What's a, what's a healthy, loving dad do? You hang on. Tolerant love. It's to say, I want to hold you close. I want to hold you close, and I want to prevent any more bad behavior on your part. So there's two ways tolerant love works. One is to help heal the wound. The other is to hold accountable to prevent further damage. That's tolerant love. And God invites us. We have Some of us have children that we need tolerant love, and it may be either they're wounded or they're disobedient, but they need tolerant love. Because that begins to preserve the unity of coming together. Um, let, let me also illustrate it in this way. I've had a number of people ask me, for example, about our dear friends at Prodigal Church. Uh, somebody last Sunday asked me about it, and others asked me about it. And let me, let me explain kind of where we're at with that. We're excited for what God's going to be doing at Prodigal Church. If you don't know, Prodigal Church is a church we started about a year and a half ago. And we had... Uh, Brent Dedman and his family and friends up here on the platform, and we commissioned them to start that church. A few weeks ago, it's about a month ago now, Brent stood before his congregation and resigned. And what he told his congregation is that he sinned, and that sin was in wrong attraction to another woman, not his wife, and that he said, by sinning in that way, I have disqualified myself from ministry, and I resigned. And he told me about it, and I've checked with others to have a thorough understanding from others' points of views, and that seems to be the consistent theme and storyline that has come out. And so he is off the pile. He has no responsibility. He's been removed from the church, and he's not fellowshipping there. He's had other positions in other schools where he's taught. He's been removed from those as well so that we can be assured that he is in a place where God can do a work. I'm not here to retaliate. I'm not here to bring judgment. I'm simply here to say this is what has happened. But I want him to have tolerant love. That is, he should be held close to be held accountable so that he never repeats that sin again. And that's how we treat people. Some people will say, well, man, in my place of work, if I was attracted to another woman, I'd be, I would have been fired ten times ago. In the church, when you have my job, I can't sin like people in other places of business sin. I sin. I'm not going to say I'm up here and I don't ever sin. But I don't sin in ways that disqualifies me from doing my work. James chapter 3, verse 1 says that those of us who teach will be held to a higher accountability than those who do not. So I operate on a very much higher 
scale of accountability and responsibility. And if I ever fail in any of those ways, you should call me on it. Because I'm up here in some crazy way representing God's truth to you. And if you don't believe me, I've got a big problem. And when Brent would get up there and preach about things, we got big problems. Because there better be balance of what I preach and how I live. That's a worthy calling. If what I preach is not what I live, we've all got a problem here. And in his case, he was preaching one thing, but he's way out of balance with his life. So we want to help him. On the other hand, the positive news is that Matt Hempel, a couple of Sundays ago, two Sundays ago now, was commissioned as the new pastor of that church. Now, he stood up here with us, Matt and his wife Erin. Many of you remember Dan O'Brien. That's Erin, his daughter, Erin Hempel now. And they stood up here with Brent and Patty when they were up here. And now Matt is going to be their new pastor, and he's taking the lead. And I had lunch with him last, last week, and he's excited for what God's doing. He's going to start a brand-new series from the book of Judges. And I thought, oh, okay. And I'm excited for that because that's meaty, that's heavy, that's, that's tough sledding. And that's good stuff to be able to be aware of. But God is going to bless that congregation. We've got a good hundred people that are there. Some are from former Calvary people still there. So we're looking for good things. And we want to show tolerant love to Matt Hemphill to support him and hold him up. And he's officing with us right up here. He comes to our chapels together. And so he'll be right here in the nest of Calvary Church that we can help support and care for him. But we also know that Brent and Patty need tolerant love as well to hold them close, to bind up the wounded, and to keep accountable those who rebel. And that's where we're at. And that's how the worthy calling invites us, so that we remember who we are. We're one body. We are one spirit with God's power. We have one hope. God controls my future. We have one Lord because God is the one I serve. We have one faith because I believe God's truth. We have one baptism, water baptism. I outwardly display who I believe in and who I follow. One God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all, and that when I live my life, my Father is one who sovereignly watches over thoroughly every aspect of my life. I love that. He is over all. He is through all. He is in all. He is immersed in my life. That's my Father in heaven. And so God invites us into that relationship. I want to invite you for a moment of inspection we're going to go to communion, and for those who are going to be preparing communion, I encourage you to get ready. But I want to invite you into this great text that is the text that teaches us about communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, which is the passage on communion, Paul writes this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That word unworthy manner goes all the way back to the first thing I talked about, worthy. It means this, that if I take communion, when I take communion, I should have this sense of Jesus on one side of the scale and me on the other side of the scale. Unworthy is where Jesus and his holiness and I'm down here still in my sin. Now, Jesus wants to cover all that sin. He wants to remove it all, so I come back and be holy with him. 
And as we are about to have this bread first symbolizing the body of Jesus and then the cup symbolizing the blood of Jesus, as this comes to you, these elements, I invite you along with myself to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. Am I worthy? Have I confessed my sins? I confess my sins and God removes my sin and gives me his righteousness. That makes me worthy. So this, this sin of, of whatever I may have, of selfishness, of pride, of greed, whatever that may be, I can get rid of it through Jesus. As I examine myself, I confess my sin, I become worthy. I'm no longer unworthy. I am now in balance with Jesus Christ. So I invite you in this moment as the elements come that you evaluate and confess so we partake and we are better together because we are worthy of the calling with which God has called us. And I would encourage you as the elements come, look at the back side of the outline. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are the things that God values most. Let me pray for us. Help us, Father, as we take these elements, as we receive them as a symbolic way to say that we are in communion with you, that we are in a state of worthiness because we confess our sins to Jesus and he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father, that you invite us into this life with you, that we become worthy through Christ who makes all things possible, including our holiness. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.